It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. For a lot of people, the COVID-19 pandemic became an unexpected opportunity to take stock of our relationships. Some friendships deepened and transformed, some slipped away, and many social circles shrank, which isn't always a bad thing. I think for the majority of us, confrontation is such a deterrent that we would stay in a stupid friendship for a decade, (laughs) a decade, hating it. Our friendships have an enormous impact on our lives, but this relationship category hardly gets any attention from social scientists and the media. And we have a lot of misconceptions about friendship. The writers and researchers in today's episode are working to change that. And in the panel you're about to hear, they pick apart the inner workings of these bonds and share some tips on making and keeping better friends. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. You'll hear from psychologist Marissa Franco, writer Eric Barker, and author, speaker, and podcast host Jen Hatmaker. Writer Jennifer Sr. moderates the conversation. Her story in The Atlantic, It's Your Friends Who Break Your Heart, went viral earlier this year. The event was held at the end of June. Here's Senior. I'm going to start by asking everyone the same question, which is just a quick status check on our friendships, like right now, what the pandemic has done, because I feel like it's shaped them, reshaped them, misshaped them in ways that we couldn't anticipate, right? So um, let's start with you. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, hi, everybody. Um, I'm so happy that you're here because I like to say every time you make a friend, someone else does too. So we're all invested in friendship together. I think for me, after the pandemic, I've realized I have a lot less social energy. And so for me, it's been a process of figuring out how to be very discerning around who I spend my time with because my social energy has been so tapped after spending two years in isolation. Eric, you want to go next? Well, for me, it was very strange because uh, I was writing a book about relationships Uh. during the pandemic. So Mm. literally, yeah, just the irony of ironies, like literally two weeks after I closed the book deal, uh, California, where I live, locked down. And so here I am like, wow, relationships are really important. Wow, (laughs) the loneliness will kill you. Oh, yeah. So like, I was really good sort of productivity-wise in terms of writing the book, but like it was also- uh, Your test tube went away. A lot of bad habits. A lot of, of, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm. And what happened? I mean, did you, did, we're but still okay, working you, on mis, that. Mr. Expert, we're, we're, I mean, but so tell us how it went. I mean, who did you choose? To- I mean, it, it's basically trying to get out there and, you know, see my friends. And like, I, I, in the book, I write about, you know, two key aspects in terms of deepening friendships are time and vulnerability. And, mm-hmm. you know, time, pretty good on that one, but like opening up, you know, uh, as a guy, not always so good at that, but like what, what I've realized is we, we've, all, we've all dealt with some difficulties. Mm-hmm. We've all dealt with challenges and it's difficulties during the pandemic is something that we can all relate to. Mm. I can't wait to get back to the subject of, asymm- of asymmetries and vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I think that's a huge issue in friendships. Yeah. Like when one person opens up more than the other. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think it's also a good litmus test. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is a good litmus. It, it absolutely is. Mm. Yeah. Jen. Mm. I relate to both. Um, 
my sort of friendship arc during the pandemic, I think may be in some ways unique to my life, but also ubiquitous to a lot of ours in that I also at the same time like lost a marriage and our family infrastructure fell apart. And so um, I need, so in some cases, my very closest friends came in way tighter. Um, they were a lifeline, of a, a salvation to be frank. Um, and our friendships deepened during the pandemic slash crisis. So I don't really know which one to blame. Um, and then in some ways, kind of like you said, Marissa, I, I was so, my bandwidth was so shrunk and my capacity was diminished. And so I could also see some of the like tier two mm -hmm. um, friendships, which took a fair amount of energy in the pre-light, in the before times um, that I just did not have. And so some of those um, suffered and recovered and some of them sort of um, went off into that good night. Right, like a wrench drifting mm -hmm. off into space. I, I, I felt the same thing, a deepening and a shallowing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that... Thank you. It's a Gravity is not my long suit. No, no, you no. just found a way to say that in 10 words. Not your long suit. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah thank no, you for no, no, shrinking no, that up. No, yes. I, it's, it's often not mine either. But I, I felt the same thing. And I felt like, uh, I think I even wrote this, that it was sort of like sending all of my friendships through a centrifuge, and that mm. the thick ones were at the top and all the thin ones kind of disappeared. Mm -hmm. um, I also, I, I don't know if other people were doing this, if they were silently making a list in their head of people that they would allow to kill them. I mean, like, if you were going to be interacting with them, mm. like, it, would, would you want it to be that friend? Like, you know, which friend would you? I, I, but I'm morbid. I, I, anyway, I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, so, all right. So now, when I dove into this, uh, I'm going to ask you this question first, Marissa, because you're the academic on the panel. I, I, when I first dove into this, I was surprised to see that there, the body of social science on friendships is actually rather anemic. Mm. It's underdeveloped, and depressingly so. Um, and when you do come across stuff, it's like, it's kind of dopey bromides and self-help often in peer-reviewed drag. It's just not very interesting. And then, I, I, and I found some stuff, but I think it explains why we don't have the right vocabulary to recruit, to speak about friendship. And then I started talking to Marissa on Zoom. We were all Zooming together and having a lovely time. And Marissa had like 20 amazing studies that, she was, that she's citing for this book mm. that I had not come across. And I wanted you to talk about um, some of the more interesting kind of um, literature that you found, particularly the stuff that relates to what impedes us when it comes to befriending people. Because yeah. I thought that stuff was amazing. Okay. First of all, I want to acknowledge peer-reviewed drag because as an academic, that is an amazing term. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what I've learned from studying the research on friendship and interpersonal interaction, one thing that really surprised me, do you know the people that are most likely to reject other people? It's the people that fear rejection the most. Um, people high in something called rejection sensitivity, they tend to project that other people are rejecting them in ambiguous circumstances, and then they become cold, and they become withdrawn, and they reject other people that weren't actually rejecting them initially, so it tends to become sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then secondly, when researchers manipulated people to assume when they went into a group they'd be accepted, even though that was a lie, those people were actually accepted because they came off as friendly and more likable. It's a phenomenon called the acceptance prophecy. So one thing that I like to tell people around friendship is that if you want to make friends, you have to initiate, and you're going to be very afraid of rejection, but you have to assume people like you.
because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the second thing that I like to share is that according to the research, our social worlds are a lot safer than we think they are. There's research on a phenomenon called the liking gap, which basically finds that when strangers interact, they underestimate how like they are by the other person. Similarly, there's research on a phenomenon called the beautiful mess effect, which basically finds that when we're vulnerable, we think people are rejecting us more than they actually are, and we underestimate how positively they're perceiving us as authentic and as honest. So the social world is more hopeful than you think, especially after the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think one of my big tips about making friends is assume people like you and get out there and initiate. That's good. That's so liberating. So people are judging you less than you think they are. Absolutely, yeah. and that, that study on the liking gap actually found that the, the more self-critical you are, the more pronounced you were underestimating how much people liked you. Mm. Oh, interesting. Uh, Eric, you also stunned me with stuff you knew that I had not run across. This has to do, it's also part of this body of literature. Where I thought it was interesting and the most robust was about our problem friends. Yeah. And then you added even more, and I didn't know about any of this stuff, or about half the stuff that you were mentioning to me. And I think we're probably going to, at some point, get deeper into our problem friends here, but let's start at least by, can you tell us about what the literature shows? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was really surprising to me that we, we think we'd probably be most stressed around people we know are enemies that we don't like. And Julianne Lundstadt at BYU has done research, and actually it's our ambivalent friends that cause us the most stress. Those are the people that drive our blood pressure the highest, cause us the most anxiety, because- And not if, people we hate, just to be clear, as yeah, opposed yeah, to people, people we outright hate. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Clearer. Be, be, exactly, that's exactly it, mm -hmm. because it's the uncertainty. Are they gonna be nice this day? Are they gonna be a pain this day? Are they gonna be it? And that's what drives us crazy, is the uncertainty. The and it, the, but the thing that really blew me away, and I think this is what you responded to as well, is that 50% yeah. of the people we deal with fall into this ambivalent category. Yeah. And we don't see ambivalent friends any less than we see the close friends. And when I tell most people this, they're surprised, but you think about difficult coworkers, neighbors, in-laws, you know, friends of friends. There's a lot of people you see routinely you have to deal with that you know, it's difficult, and that's where so much, a disproportionate amount of the stress comes from, is not the people that you identify as enemies, but the people you're uncertain about. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so this tees up very nicely. Jen, I've only met you on Zoom once, hmm. but you instantly struck me as this remarkable combination of like exuberant transparency hmm. and tact. Hmm. Um, and you did, so, it was to you that I wanted to ask, okay, so you have a difficult friend. Mm. What's the script? Mm. How do you handle those? Mm -hmm. We all have friends who cause us mm. all kinds of conflicted, complicated feelings, right? Totally. Yeah. Um, and I think probably instinctively you know who they are, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, this isn't a huge mystery. <laughs> like these are the ones that you are having those constant conversations with in your brain. Um, and you are, you're so good at it in the shower. <laughs> so good at that discussion. Um, and so I, I think there's a distinction to be made probably between um, what might be a necessary ending and what isn't. And I, I look at uh, some of my relationships and think, 
in the long run, in the, in the overhaul, in the, from the 30,000 foot view, is this relationship mostly healthy? Like, has it, does it primarily fuel me? Does it primarily energize me? Is it reciprocal? Um, is there a built-in mutual respect inside of it? Um, and we're in a patch, right? We're having a, a rough patch, or we're having one particular issue um, that is sort of an anomaly to the relationship. Or does this, does this friendship just constantly stress me the hell out, right? Is this the one where I am, um, generally leaving it depleted, irritated, um, feeling invisible or unseen or unheard, frustrated. When the scales tip, I think that's when this, that's when this comes into play. When, when it's time, when, it, when a relationship has become unhealthy or even toxic. Um, and so getting out of that is so challenging, right? I, I think for the majority of us, confrontation in general is such a deterrent that we would stay in a stupid friendship for a decade, <laughs> a decade, hating it, yeah. like hating it, absolutely hating that person for, for hell's bells, we'll right? Like, just for that reason. Like, for they're, they're just like, graves, like we would just stay in and be irritated and frustrated because we don't have, want to have one hard conversation. It doesn't make sense. Totally. It doesn't make sense. And so there is a way through it that just requires maturity and a sort of a measured response to that person. And I don't, this is not easy. I'm not suggesting that it is. But I do think there's a handful of guardrails to put around it. First of all, that needs to be a face-to-face -face conversation. Sorry. I wish that wasn't the system, but it is. Um, <laughs> like, we're too old to text a breakup. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but um, it needs to be in a calm moment not in the heat of a discussion or a disagreement, some, or when you're already idling high. Like, you need to be calm and measured and face-to-face. -face. And, and I think there's some ways through it. I think you start, um, you start kind and you say, um, at the beginning of this friendship, this was one of my favorite things about us. Um, that you always made me feel seen, or I always felt like I could come to you and say anything, or I loved the way that you were in a room, and um, I felt supported by you, and I've always cherished that about you. That's always been like precious to me. Um, for, next, let me say this. I am sorry, because I have been feeling a different way for however long, and instead of being honest and even courageous to talk to you directly and frankly, I've just avoided it and it's probably come out sideways. It probably came out as passive aggression. Um, it probably came out in distance. Um, you probably felt it, and that's because I was just, I was avoiding a conversation, and that's my fault. Um, and even, here are some ways that I've contributed to some of a gap between our relationship. At this point in our relationship, I, when we are together, I no longer feel seen cherished, safe, whatever the thing was that you said originally. Um, I struggle to be myself. I find myself hiding how I'm actually feeling or what I'm actually wanting. Um, I, um, I feel unseen or I feel like this is no, no longer reciprocal. Um, I feel um, resentful. Whatever it is, it's about you. It's not about them. This is not the moment to like list their <laughs> sins, right. okay? Mm -hmm. um, I kind of hate how you are. That's not what we say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even like you. <laughs> That's not what we do. Um, this is a moment to say, this is how I feel inside of our friendship. And it's my fault for not saying it sooner. Um, and so at this point, I need our, us to have space in our friendship. 
Yes, it's hard. Yes, they will probably be angry, hurt, lash out, especially if that relationship is not reciprocal and you have done the lion's share of work inside of it and that person's accustomed to taking advantage of you. That's, don't expect this to go well. Well, that's um, the irony. Don't expect right, it to go the, well. The irony is that, it, right. That's right. And yet, hold firm. And, um, and don't, don't come back three days later because you can't handle the discomfort. I'm, like, just sit in it. I'm just going to say, I don't know, does Kindle, do Kindle singles still exist? Like, do, doesn't, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know that. If you sold that direct transcript for 99 cents, I think, like, everyone <laughs> in the world would buy it. I mean, it, it, that was really, I was not expecting something so perfectly crafted. I had mm. sort of said to her, can you, like, think about it? Like, you just mm. seem like you'd know that. That was insane. Mm. That was beautiful. Mm -hmm. Well, that's because it's fake. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if I was sitting well, across from somebody, expect that to be way wonkier. Okay, but but, um, but it, that will get you from point A to point B, even though it's hard. Okay, let me now flip this around and let's talk about best practices for how to keep good friendships. Like, what, what do you think when people have healthy friendships? What do you think is going on? Because mm. I'm sure you're pretty good at maintaining friends. Mm. I'm a friend person. Um, and my friendships to me are literally as precious to me as my family members. And so I, I don't know if this is too like demonstrative and melodramatic, but I don't have another gear. So um, I have always treated my best friendships, and that's a small crew for sure. They're not negotiable for me. I don't treat those as the first thing to go when I'm busy or when I'm stressed, or when life is going sideways, that the friendship is the thing that's optional. Um, I've never approached my friendships like that, neither have my friends. And so we have centered each other in our lives, even in the like early baby days, when it was just like, it was just a shit show, you know? <laughs> Can we say that? Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> we were just like, I don't know, just come over, let's just put our babies in the bathtub. <laughs> like, um, we just found a way yeah. to stay, because it's just time. That's what it is. It's time, it's proximity, it's attention, it's I'm in your life and you are in mine. Um, and if we let that slide every time life slides, we will have no friends. Because life is always sliding. It's always sliding one way or another. And so um, my friendships are, they, they get a key priority in my life. We spend a ton of time together. And, um, and so when all these kids finally leave my house, will they? Will they? <laughs> Somebody tell me. <laughs> Please give me some good news. Um, I need to know if they'll stay gone. Um, but your friends will be there. They'll be there. Because you've assigned value to them and you've, and you've prioritized there. them. We have matching so, scooters. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's not it's wedding deal. rings, but it's, it's no, like it's a, a thing. Right, yeah. okay. So, Marissa, I'd love to ask you, I want to know what social science says about this. The one fact that I took away that I thought was... I mean, and there are a number of um, studies that sort of show what healthy relationships look like, and I, I want you to tell me what they are. One thing that I found very interesting, and slightly demoralizing, but we should know about it. Um, this was a well-designed study in the Netherlands looking at a big age cohort. Every seven years, about 50% of our innermost network gets switched out. So if you look at a photograph with you and your nearest and dearest from Seven years ago, about half of those people are now in your life, which is kind of, I mean, it, hmm. it's a little goose pimpling. It's a little, it's a little sad, right? Um, but it is, and it, it doesn't mean, so tell me, those who stick around, tell me how this works out. Tell me yeah. what, yeah. 
Yeah, so what makes a friendship likely to succeed? I remember for my book, I was interviewing this woman and she told her friend she would go to a friend's dance recital. This was during the pandemic. And this woman ended up having some sort of strange illness. She's very sick, she didn't know why. It was the pandemic. She decided to tell her friend, hey, I don't think I can come to your dance recital. And her friend is appalled and tells her she's a terrible friend, she doesn't show up for her, she's abandoning her. What's going on in that friendship is there's a breakdown in something called inclusion of other in the self. And that's sort of a social psychology term for when we get close to someone, we include them in our sense of self. So what happens to them feels like it's happening to us. We naturally empathize with people we become close to. But when there's a breakdown in inclusion of others in the self, one friend can look to get their needs met at the expense of the other person. So that's where you have the sort of toxic friendships that come in. In a healthy friendship, you have something in the research world that's called mutuality, which basically means your well-being is as important to mine, and we're figuring out a way to negotiate this so that we can fulfill both of our needs at any given time. So what does that mean practically speaking, right? Let's say your friend calls you late at night, which is like 9.30 for me, but I don't know about the rest of you. <laughs> your friend calls you late at night because they want to talk about the latest episode of, I don't know, Survivor or something, and you just want to be like, I'm sorry, I'm too tired, I can't talk, right? Um, that makes sense. But let's say your friend calls you at 9.30 at night and is like, my child is self-harming and I need to talk to you about this, right? If you're engaged in mutuality, your boundaries are flexible based on your consideration of the friend's needs and your needs at any given time. And so what I think I see current day in friendship is there isn't that flexibility. I think we've been moving towards this culture of sort of like very rigid boundaries, right? Tell your friends you're not available. Tell them you're not there. Take the time to just focus on yourself, right? And that I think is true to an extent. Obviously, we, I think you know, this is a sucker punch against long-term movement of women feeling like they have to self-sacrifice and self-sacrifice and endlessly and just think about everyone else, right? But I think we just want to keep in mind that more broadly, we want to take care of ourselves and we want to take care of our people and we want to be in relationship with them. And that is taking care of ourselves over the long run. I, I wonder if we pull the drawbridge in because, you know, we are always making ourselves available in every other way. Like we can, we, re, we reply to emails no matter what they're sent to us. We, we reply to texts, you know, because I, I would not have said that we live in a boundary drawing moment. I would have said the opposite. Mm. So maybe our friends are paying the price for that mm. because we have to be on call in every other way. Mm -hmm. That's um, a good point. Yeah. So, okay. I wanted to ask you about friendship and health, right? I think there's a lot of evidence that maybe they're good for you. I mean, you want to talk about <laughs> yeah, <laughs> positive benefits? Tons. I okay. Mean, I, start with anything. Uh, but there was a, anything. UC Berkeley had a study of 9,000 people that basically says you know positive relationships can add a decade. To your life uh, was that there was a 2003 roundup of the research that, like, basically positive social relationships were second only to genetics in terms of predicting health and longevity. Mm -hmm. And specific to, specific to friends, That's um, Robin Dunbar, who's famous for the Dunbar number, right. you know, the circlet, he was curious about after you have a heart attack, one year later, what predicts whether you'll be alive or not. Mm -hmm. And he looked at all the research, and he came back with two things. Do you smoke? How many friends do you have? So literally, exercise, nutrition, it matters, no doubt, mm -hmm. but the gulf between those two, smoking a number of friends and everything else was to the point where he was comfortable kind of saying, don't smoke, have lots of friends. Mm -hmm. 
Well, so you could be a couch potato, but if you had friends, <laughs> his wording was actually even more extreme than <laughs> yeah, that. It I was mean, like you can lay around, <laughs> eat whatever you want. He was he was having fun with it, but he, he said the goal. But it's was, actually true. Yes, was that true. and even even within friendships, mm. your behavior counts in terms of your interactions. If if uh, was it Robert Garfield at UPenn uh, was basically if you are not open and vulnerable with your friends about what's going on, the challenges you're facing, that it prolongs minor illnesses, increases chance of first heart attack, and increases the chance that that heart attack will be lethal. Gosh. We are meant to be with other people. I mean, wow. it's no wonder that the yeah. pandemic was devastating for That's so right. Yeah. yeah. Um, you alluded to this before, Eric. Yeah. Uh, is there a gendered aspect to friendship? Mm. I mean, you definitely see differences, you know, wh whether it's whether it's innate behavioral, you definitely see trends, you know, in terms. Can you? F I mean, first, uh, first like and foremost, cliches, right? you know, uh, what? The cliche, like the cl guys are side by side, women are face to face. I mean, how much of you, that stuff you, is true? You, you, do, you, you do see definitely that, I mean, men are not as good as maintain, at maintaining their relationships, you mm -hmm. know, over time. Uh, it's if you if you ask, if you ask, you know, married, you know, middle-aged or older women, who's your best friend, they'll mention another woman. If you ask men, you're very likely to hear my wife. My wife, yeah. right. And, you know, and... Totally. And with, if you look at, you know, like time use, uh, women are more likely to spend their friendship time communicating. Men are more likely to spend it in mutual activities. Yeah. So that's true? It's the issue of proximity seems critical for men. In but like every dumb sitcom is actually right. Like that's actually. I mean, just that you know, it's like telling guys, you know, oh, you should call your friends. It's like that's probably not going to happen. Versus having something to oh, do, okay. having something third party to focus on and accomplish. Yeah. You know, again, for whatever reason, cultural or otherwise, it's like. The, these are the trends you see, and it's, pro it's probably what oh, men are going to be more receptive to. Go for it. Do, is, do you see a difference in well-being? Like, is there a superior way, if, if women are more communicative and mm -hmm. vulnerable with their words, and men mm -hmm. are more side-by-side -side activity based, does it still have the same effect on their well-being, though? See, what's interesting there is, is I, I'm not sure what is I'm not sure if, if there is a universal optimal or yeah. if it is gendered in that way. The impression I get from looking at the research is that it certainly would benefit men mm. in general to be more to be more open about what they're facing. It's like you mentioned the beautiful mess effect mm. and stuff, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. Certainly there are issues for men in terms of in terms of displaying competence and stuff like that, expectations. But I don't think there's much doubt that you know a lot of men would benefit from opening up a little bit more, at least within the context we're talking about friendships. You know, it's kind of like a lot of people feel like they don't get enough support from their friends. Yeah. If you don't talk about the challenges you're facing, I don't know how you expect your friends to help you. Yeah, I, I wanted to um, speak to the social history of this because it, it wasn't always true that men were having such shallow friendships. If you yeah. look at pictures of men in the early 1800s, you see them cuddling. You see them holding hands with their male friends. You see them sharing beds with their male friends. Abraham Lincoln. Abraham friend. Lincoln. It's one of the most right, um, cliched example. Yeah. yeah, and in the early 1800s, what happened was sexual orientation wasn't an identity. It was 
you should not have sex with someone of the same gender. But all of these behaviors cannot indicate someone's sexuality. So you could hold hands with someone because you weren't having sex with someone of the same gender, and you could share a bed with them, and you could write love letters to them, because all of that wasn't indicating someone's sexuality. It was simply, don't have sex with someone of the same gender. And then, in eight, around 1867, we had um, Sigmund Freud and another psychiatrist, Richard von Kraft Ebbing, and basically, they created the concept of sexual orientation as not just the sex that you have with someone, but this entire identity in their process of stigmatizing it and calling it, dis it a disorder. Mm. And so ever since then, we see this phenomenon called homohysteria, which is that men are, straight men are afraid of being perceived as gay. Yeah. And so because of that, there's just so many behaviors that nurture friendship that can trigger men's homohysteria, such as being vulnerable, such as mm. telling another friend, I like you, I appreciate mm -hmm. you, you mean something to me. And so because of this history, I think we think it's like the natural way of things that men have these inferior connections, but I think we know from this history that men desire that closeness and that vulnerability just as much as the rest of us. Mm. And, and they lost, I mean, so they lost the language for it. They lost every mm. kind of cultural cue. It's a craft ebbing. Richard von Kraft Ebbing. Yeah. No, I know, but I'm saying it's a crap. It, oh. <laughs> Sorry, I was making a very bad pun. Uh, just ignore it. It was. It didn't work. I, I, I almost had it. It was like within reach, so and it close. slipped off the I shelf. So close. Forget it. I Never pun it. in a panel. Okay. Anyway, but I, I'm just thinking about like this is like a lost skill, a you lost know, or lost skill. art. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it is sad. I mean, yeah, and it's everyone's loss because um, you know it puts more pressure on a marriage if you're, you know. It's a, um, so tell me, what is it that you think, that you see, that people struggle with the most in friendships? You know, yeah. what? Yeah, this is a great question. I think it's fear of rejection. Mm -hmm. I think if we didn't fear rejection, we would take a lot more initiative in friendship. And I think well, the problem is, you know, of course, we're, we're a lot less likely to be rejected than we think we are, but we never actually test this assumption because you know, we just have this assumption and that keeps us from ever actually trying to put ourselves out there and knock on our neighbor's door and say, hey, I just moved in and I'd love to connect with you, right? And so there's this theory that I really like called risk regulation theory, which basically argues that we are either in self-protection mode or pro-relationship mode. Self-protection mode is, I'm not gonna reach out to you because I'm afraid you're going to reject me, right? Self-protection mode is, I'm not gonna be vulnerable because you can exploit me. And that is antithetical to pro-relationship mode, which is, I'm gonna be vulnerable. I'm gonna tell you how much I like you. I'm gonna tell you how much I value you. And the problem is, I think, we don't realize when we're in self-protection mode that that's not just protecting us because it's inevitably harming our relationships. And so according to risk regulation theory, in order to be really good at making friends, we need to get other people out of self-protection mode mm. into pro-relationship mode. And so that is why people want to be friends with people that show them that they won't reject them. The secret to making friends, the secret to being likable, according to these theories, is really to show people that you like them. Because then they're going to be feel safe enough to invest in a relationship with you. Okay, mm -hmm. I, I like that answer. The, the only thing is that sounds like um, what might impede some, what might hinder someone from becoming a friend. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're, I'm 52. I'm not afraid of rejection at this point in my life. Uh, when I'm thinking about my friendships and what makes them complicated and what I'm struggling with in friendships of very uh, long-standing, yeah. I'm trying to figure out, mm -hmm. you know, what. What people, this is, uh, I wrote about a lot of this, and I'm curious what everybody on this panel thinks about mm -hmm. this. Um, envy is something that very few people feel comfortable speaking about. Mm -hmm. Very hard to talk about envy in a friendship. 
Um, I tried to address it. I wrote about it in my story. Mm. And a friend of mine then said to me, fine, you didn't write about anger. I mean, think about the satchels of anger that some of us have and carry around and that goes unexpressed for years toward friends. And I thought, wow, you know, I could have done 2,000 words about that, and I didn't. And it's true. It's a very, it's a big thing. I'm just trying to figure out the things. Mm. So when you were talking about, like, a, a reluctance to make oneself vulnerable, yeah. yes, I have a friend who would sooner have an organ removed than mm. say something about herself that in any way made her seem vulnerable. And I said at one point that it was like, playing, you know, strip poker with somebody who is in a down parka, you know, you're just like every time, it's very frustrating, you know, I, I'm just, I, I, and I think those can really erode, you know, your friendships over time, so I'm trying to figure out what people are struggling with, whether they're age specific. Mm. Mine Both would be empirical, anecdotal, probably at best. Yeah, I but lead, you're talkers, all of you. And, you know, we are, observers, you know. so damn true. Um, I lead a large community of women, so I have a lot of this, this conversation is centered in our community. And I don't think it's one thing. I, I don't, it's, it's, it's too big of a complex issue to reduce to kind of one key through line. But I, I can say that two really common issues I see around established friendships and why are they hard. Um, what makes them hard or what makes them become hard. One of them is, transitions in that our lives are changing. Um, so for some of us, it's we are going from being single to married, or we're going from being married to divorced, or we're going from having no kids to kids, or kids to empty nest, or we move. Um, the transitions are hard on friendships. Um, when all of a sudden some of the connective tissue that we had is loosened, or we hit the thing at different times, and all of a sudden, some of the shared stuff is missing. I see transitions as being a, a real culprit. Asynchrony. Real yeah, culprit deal, yeah. in friendships that weaken bonds. And then the other one that I tend to see most often, and that also I've experienced, is a reciprocity problem. In that sometimes in adult friendships, it either from the jump, because that was never, it was doomed to begin with, or it becomes so that one friend is doing and giving more than the other. Mm. Um, that's the listener, it's the solver, she's the fixer, she's the responder, she's the one that jumps in and says, how can I help? How, and with very little on the receiving end, just in terms of mutuality. And that's just the death knell. Like after a while, that is so um, corrosive to a healthy relationship. And then resentment, of course, starts to build and then anger, and then, um, so the, those are two of the things that I see in adult friendships that tend to capsize the boat um, quicker than some of the other stuff. What do you think? Well, I mean, to your point, is it was, a piece of research I found really interesting was that a lot of people think, you know, bad times, bad transitions, you know, and that was exactly where they use your word, uh, are stressful, and bad transitions are stressful, but the thing is, all no. life transitions yeah. are stressful, yeah. you know? And when you see people's lives change dramatically for the better, they're still changing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like whether somebody, you know, starts making tons of money or starts shifting anything, which at distance we might say, oh, that's a good problem to have. It can still be a problem. Mm. And it's like that, it is, it is so hard. I mean, for mm. people who are potentially shifting metaphorically from one world to another, 
you know, it's difficult for them and it can be difficult for everyone around them. Mm -hmm. um, the friend who, who said to me, you should have spoken more about anger, says, takes tremendous pride in whenever another friend of his succeeds, he calls them up and says, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Which I think is really, <laughs> it's a joke, but it's great. It kicks open a door well, to your point. Well, and, but, I, but I mean, but that is, that's so wonderful. That, that that person initiated it hmm. because the problem on the other end of success is you're not allowed. You can't. Oh, it's so terrible having all this bitch, money. You're right? not, you're not you allowed to say right. that. No. You know? So yeah. And if you say it is great having all this money, you're a braggart. You, you can't mm. win. Right. 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 And then you're denying what's going on, which is the opposite of being open. Right. right. So what I saw in the literature that I was the most responsive to was failures of reciprocity. It was transitions. It was um, asymmetry, uh, betrayals. Marissa, you want to? Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I mean, I just want to add to all the beautiful answers that we've heard so far. And that is, I feel like in friendship, we often fail to make the unspoken spoken. Mm -hmm. Oh, that, that's beautiful. Yeah, that there's reciprocity issues and there's these transition issues and we never speak their name. And so they just corrode the friendship mm -hmm. in silence. And it's like, I just think when we think about our romantic relationships, Imagine if we never spoke about any issues right. with our romantic partners. Like, who would stay in a relationship? Yet we expect that friendship, we shouldn't need to have these open conflict conversations. And I feel like if there's one thing I've learned from studying friendship so intensively, it's that a relationship is a relationship is a relationship. And the things that you've learned that have helped your romantic relationship succeed will also make your friendship succeed. And we need to see these skills yeah. as more transferable. Yeah. Okay, good. That is, it's so good. And it, it's a perfect segue into what I think should be <laughs> sort of our final round here before we open it up to everybody else. You've just done this book, which I can't wait to read. It's gonna be really good. <laughs> um, so <laughs> make the case for why we should assign a higher value a higher value to our friendships, right? Because mm -hmm. we don't have a well-developed vocabulary if you're talking about friendship. We don't say the things we should be saying. We're not as demonstrative. Yeah. You're so right. And in fact, so one of Philip Roth's dear friends said to me, I can't believe Philip Roth had such a close friendship in this particular way with this fellow. He said, what Roth gave me were the feelings I couldn't give to myself. Mm. And he made me feel like my best self was my finest self. Philip Roth, who I think of as being nothing but serrated edges, you know. Mm -hmm. It's a very wonderful thing to think. So uh, what you just said is so wonderful. Like, let, let's actually speak those parts out loud. Yeah. But talk for a minute about, like, why we should be assigning higher values to friendship across the board. Yeah. What's the case to be made? That we're being bad. Yeah, you, you know? know, I've certainly been taught to love on a hierarchy. And I right. came, I came to friendship um, with much regret that I wasn't seeing the value of my friends. And you know, after a breakup, I started this wellness group with my friends where we met up each week and I saw just how much they loved me at a difficult time. And I, I thought to myself, why didn't this love matter? Like this love has been here all along. And yet I felt without a romantic relationship, I had no love in my life, but I always did. And why hadn't this love mattered? And as I, I delved deep into the history for this book and the psychology, what I've realized is it's not radical to prioritize friendship even above romantic partners because that's been true throughout history. Romantic partners were chosen for practical reasons. You would choose a partner that would, you know, 
enhance your family name or give you resources. And friends were the relationship that people went to for true and deep intimacy. And so, you know, I think that if we look back at history, we realize that we don't have to trap friendship in this box of once a month happy hours that we've put it in, and that a friendship can be every bit as deep and every bit as powerful as any of, of the other relationship goliaths in our life, like our parents, like our spouses. And we have more, excuse me, and, and we have more friends than we have spouses. I mean, that's the other, right? Yeah, like, that's right. I mean, that's hopefully. Right. <laughs> math. <laughs> math. Yeah, right, if you're Elizabeth yeah. Taylor. But I mean, yeah, yeah. right? So yes, and so also another, yes. Mm. But I love that point about, right? yeah, marriage until 10 minutes ago was like not even <laughs> yeah. for any other reason other than, right. Yeah, that's such a beautiful answer, Marissa. It's really hard to add to that. I feel like you've just, that's the thesis for why friends should be prioritized. Um, there is something about being deeply loved um, by people who are just choosing you. You know, you didn't birth them. Um, you know, <laughs> right. they're not protecting their inheritance. Um, <laughs> you're not legally You're not their them. kid. Uh, whatever it is, um, they're just choosing you because they love you. And that has so many ancillary effects on my heart uh, that my friends, um, just love me and I love them. Like we have love songs. Like, we're all the way, we're like the olden days. Like we tell each other how much we love each other and um, we're demonstrative with our words and our affection, um, both emotionally and physically. And, um, and having that group of people who just choose one another is powerful. It really is. It's powerful. And it takes some of the pressure off the ones who don't get to unchoose us. You know, <laughs> they're stuck with us. I mean, they like us too. But um, I, th like I've told the people that are in my life um, with family bonds, I'm like, you just don't even know how much my friends take off your plate. You don't even know. <laughs> like you should write them all thank you notes. You know what I'm saying? Like it just, it releases our family bonds to um, not have so much pressure put on them to be our everything, to love us in all the complete ways we need to be loved as human beings. Um, I, 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 can't, I cannot get a visual of my life without my friends. I, I, I have no imagination for it and I don't want to. Um, and so they're too deep and too precious and too special um, to imagine a day without them. And so whatever it takes, to keep them healthy, to keep the conversations on the table that need to be had, like any given relationship that matters to us, um, to give them a longest shelf life, um, to have reciprocity and mutuality and just like beautiful shared love, it's all worth it. Every single hard conversation, every single thing that we do to prioritize that, all the time that we spend, the hours and minutes we get, all matters. It all matters. Because plus we're going to live 10 years longer. Yeah. Right? <laughs> we're going to live longer. We're going to have less heart attack. <laughs> I like it. What do you want to add? Uh, well, I mean, I was Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman did research around the friend, friends make us happier than any other relationship. And there's an irony there, there's a tremendous irony that the relationship that brings us the most happiness is the one that has no institution backing it. Yeah. You know, you have, you have a contract with your employer, you have marriage with your spouse, yeah. blood with your kids, yeah. and you, know, you have a problem with your marriage, go see a marriage counselor. Problem with your kids, see a child therapist. Mm. Problem with your friends, they die like an old goldfish, just yeah. thrown away. Just, there's right. not any institution backing. There's no metaphorical lobbying group 
you know, four friends, but the, the ironic benefit there, the good thing there, is that you're, someone is only your friend because you like them, because they make you happy. It is never an act of obligation. It is an act because they make you happy, you make them happy. That makes friendship fragile, but it makes it pure and true because you don't have to be there. And, and that's, I was just gonna say, it, it could be an irony or it could be actually yeah. the result, Absolutely. right? Mm -hmm. The fact that you're not bound by blood or by a contract or anything, yeah. that might be the very reason yeah. that they give us so much joy. We yeah. opt in yeah. and it's the very thing that makes us- And, and you can easily opt out. And, and, right, it's what makes them fragile and what yeah. makes them beautiful and yeah. special and perfect. Um, and it's what also makes them so devastating when they end. That's right. Yeah. More devastating in some ways, than which we can get into maybe during the Q&A, but yeah. I'm, I'm interested yeah. in so we've got about the right, almost 15 minutes, went a little over, um, and the mics can now, I don't know how that works, ah, that lovely woman with the mic will be wandering around the room, and I, okay, um, I saw a very exuberant hand go up, yeah, and now yeah, I can't yeah, yeah. remember, yeah. help me out, <laughs> where, uh, this one came up first, which one came up first, right, uh-huh, yep, yep, okay, right over there, right yep. out of the gate, yep, that's what I thought, mm -hmm. okay, Eric, could you focus on the over 65 group for a huh. moment, there's no question that there, uh, that's those of us who are baby boomers are focusing on longevity. Yeah. And as you said, uh, socialization certainly contributes to longevity and the opposite, loneliness causes premature mortality. Mm -hmm. yeah. But yet the people that don't have a lot of friends by the time they're 65 yeah. frequently have a hard time mm -hmm. making friends. Yeah. Yeah. And then when a spouse dies, that compounds itself tremendously. Yeah. My question then is, what do you tell a person who knows that they're supposed to have friends but have a hard time making friends? That's a good question. And you know, and, and if I could just say one, Claude yeah. Fisher, the sociologist at mm -hmm. Stanford, I think, yeah. he once said something very devastating that addresses this head on, that no one is lonelier than an old man. Hmm. That that is the single loneliest demographic category. And, and so it's an important, so take it away. I mean, yeah. like what, what, what can one do to broaden, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, one thing I found really interesting in researching was the issue of loneliness, was that basically it's associated with like every negative health thing you can possibly imagine to the point where I'm shocked insurance companies don't like mandate you run out and hug your friends. Like, <laughs> but, like, but the thing is that John Cacioppo was the leading researcher on loneliness and what he found is that lonely people don't spend any less time with others than non-lonely people mm. do. You know, loneliness, because we've all felt lonely in a crowd. That's you know, that being, being in the middle of Times Square, you'd be surrounded by people. That doesn't mean you don't, you don't feel lonely. You know, so loneliness is how you feel about your relationships. You know, it was a fail birdie at University of York did research basically showing that before the 19th century, the concept of loneliness didn't really exist. You know, because we were all embedded in tribes, groups, religions, you know, that we always felt connected. We had an idea that others were associated with us. So loneliness is a perception issue. Not that it's not real, but just when you're alone and you feel like you have bonds, we have a good word for that. It's called solitude. It's called me time. It's a good thing. When you feel like, even if you do have people, but you don't feel like you're close to them, that's when the negative effects of loneliness kicks in. In terms of making friends, I think Marissa, Marissa contributed probably the best part there, was in terms of that issue of, you know, honestly showing those things. It, for my book, the first thing I wanted to do was look at 
everything from how to win friends and influence people. Look, those basically Mythbusters, Dale Carnegie. Mm. And most of his principles, which were all before the okay. advent of social science, almost everything was true, except for putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. We're terrible at that. <laughs> but, um, you know, how to win friends and influence people is a great thing. But I think Marissa can speak to the specifics and the research on that better than I can. Um, oh, go on. Oh, yeah. Um, thank you so much for your question. Um, so I think aside from assuming people like you, making sure that you're initiating, because friendships, we think they happen organically, but they don't. Um, when they happen organically, there's a few ingredients in place, and that's continuous unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability, which we get in school, right? We see people every day. We have recess, we have lunch, we have you know gym class where you can share that vulnerability. But as adults, a lot of times we don't get that. And so the question is, how can you recreate those environments and create infrastructure for that in your life? So I suggest thinking about an interest, joining a group wherein you can pursue that interest in community with other people, and to stay within that group for at least, uh, at least two to three months. And that's because you'll be capitalizing on a phenomenon called the mere exposure effect, which is our unconscious tendency to like people the more familiar they are to us, and for them to like us the more familiar we are to them. Mm. And so, so join a group. Stick it out a little bit, assume people like you, mm. and initiate interaction with the people that you like outside the group. Can I throw in one thing about Cassiopo's research that I think is really relevant here? Mm -hmm. He had also looked at the data um, that married people live longer, right? Because they're not as lonely, right? They've got somebody, and also somebody who's going, that mole on your mm -hmm. back, get that mm -hmm. thing turned down, right? <laughs> but it's, it's both, though. It's also having a, compa it's companionship, too. And then he looked at people who were lonely in their marriages and discovered that there was no health benefit at all. Mm. And I was going to ask you, you were saying that like, there's a correlation between friends, how many friends you have um, and how long you live. Is it how many or how mm. deep the bonds are? Because you might only need one yeah. friend or two. I'm not sure. Is it a question of volume for, for, or depth? For, for most of the research puts quality over, over it's quality. quality. Okay. No, no doubt. Dunbar specifically did say number of friends. I mean, you know, but that's that specific research he did. In general, quality and depth is more important. It seems like it, I, yeah. th that would be my intuition. Yeah. yeah. So I would say, like, it, it yeah. Hmm. Anyone else? You had your hand up early. Yes. And I like that men are asking questions. Me too. Say, yeah. <laughs> when I wrote this story, I was told it was a chick story, and I got really mad. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Well, this has to do with that. Yeah. Um, so I'm sitting out here. I'm an older guy. I have a lot of guy friends. Um, and I'm um, curious. I'm listening and I'm hearing the stories from women. Mm. And I'm imagining in my mind, and I might be wrong, mm. I'm imagining that you're talking about your girlfriends. Mm. And when I'm talking or hearing you, I'm hearing you say, uh, we men have to have activity to maintain our friends. But what about men and women having friendships that are not sexual? Uh, that seems like it's a problem. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the when Harry met Sally Very question. Tricky. Okay. So tricky. <laughs> Whoever does the cats' scene in the, on the panel gets a medal. Uh, Somebody else want to take this one? <laughs> Do you have evidence for this? Yeah, we need, we need, we need, we need the academic perspective on this. I mean, uh, uh, 
just the, there's a bit of a logical fallacy because then bisexual people can't be friends with anyone. Mm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I'll say, and I'll push it to my penalty. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> It's Mike, probably what, less? <laughs> yeah. This is not satisfying. You can do better. Yeah. 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 I, mean, there, I, don't ha- I don't have data around this. I'm just, <laughs> so, there's I bad know, data just, like, around this generally. Um, some of my absolute closest friends as a grown-up lady are my men friends. Um, and those almost entirely, with almost no exceptions, are old friendships. Um, we've, we've been through the fires together for a couple of decades. Um, now, I don't know if it cancels them out because they're attached to my women friends. They're attached to my best friends, but they're like brothers. Um, and so, I don't know, culturally, we're, we're, it's suggested to us that it is a problem, as you said. Um, in my life, it has been a great joy um, to have men in my life that love me as a friend um, and have demonstrated remarkable friendship toward me. Um, but I don't know. You guys are the ones with the research in your pockets on this. Yeah. I know some research, but I don't know if it's that satisfying. I mean, actually, the research is mixed over whether men report more intimate relationships with woman friends versus men friends. Either it's equal. Men tend to report that they, they have equal intimacy with their men and women friends, or they report they have more intimacy with their woman friends than their men friends. So that's, I think, actually... Um, cross-gender friendships tend to provide a real resource. We also see in the research that when men are vulnerable, women tend to judge them less than other men will. And so if we want men to lean into that vulnerability, which I think is really the fundamental issue in men's friendships is a vulnerability issue, mm-hmm. I think men tend to access that through their relationships with women. So, so because of that, I, I think there's great potential for friendships across gender. Yeah, I, I, don't, I think it's easy. You know, you're not professionally competing. You're not sitting there and comparing how mm-hmm. you look. I mean, mm-hmm. I think there are many, it makes things much less vexed. I mean, I, w- mm-hmm. I would say one of my very, very closest friends is a man. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I just think that there are all sorts of dynamics that are utterly absent. But it, the scholar- scholarship around friendship is really anemic, mm-hmm. and it's unimpressive in the main. The research money goes into marriage, right? Because these, that's a pillar of our institutions. Parent-child relationships. The, these are you can't get mm-hmm. funding for studying friendship until recently, right? I mean, this was a challenge. I had to pull. I had pulled I from like the So your question is great. Research. Yeah. Yeah. So you I mean, can't be mad at us for this thing. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm, well, that I'm is trying, not our fault. I'm trying to give Nobody you what I think is a legitimate. Uh, it, yes. that if yeah. you're looking for, I mean, I couldn't find what I thought was satisfying scholarship around what I thought were reasonable questions. And this is like, I'm sorry, pedestrian questions. Yours is not as pedestrian. And and look, we're, yeah. all, we're all sitting here going, no. yeah, I mean, <laughs> So I, I went from I went from writing a, a love chapter in my book to a friendship chapter, and I'm writing a love chapter. And I'm like, oh my god, how am I going to read all of this research? There's so much. Oh god, once this chapter's done, it's going to be so much. Yeah, well then I got to have French. There's nothing. Right. Like, there's nothing. Like I'm going to have to start. I'm going to go back to writing fiction. Like, it's like there was, so it's mm. it is a really hard question mm. in general, and I think that area in specific, mm, I don't think science has gotten there yet. Yeah, I, I I spoke to one of the older researchers in the field, and he just said that the money was just a not. Vacuum. It was it was it was a vacuum. Yeah. Mm. Um, yes. Thank <laughs> you. 
Uh, both of you, you and then you. Do it. <laughs> okay, I'll start. Uh, just to speaking to that last topic, three of my very dearest friends on this earth have been men, mm -hmm. and they've all been 35 to 45 years older than I. We shared very intense personal conversations, artistic interests. Um, in some cases, we work together on projects and things, but so that's really possible, but I don't know about same age friends. You know, they, they kind of come and go and drift through your life. But my question is actually, my next door neighbor and I, wonderful person, and I talk about getting goats, which would get us kicked out of our neighborhood association. <laughs> but we also talk about having a commune. Mm -hmm. Is there any, and there are women that I love that I would love to live with, and none of their husbands think it would be a good idea <laughs> all to yeah. live together. So they want to keep us kind of separate. Yeah. Uh, is there any research on community living, hmm. co-living with people intentional co-living, mm -hmm. or do you become contractually bound and then it loses the magic mm -hmm. of free friendship once you form a commune? Mm -hmm. Do you see anything on that? <laughs> <laughs> this is where, once again, we'd say that there's a lacuna in the research that we actually don't know. It's a wonderful question. It's a wonderful question. Mm. I think w once you impose all of the... When friends go to marriage or to, to couples counseling, once you elevate the practices of friendship to this other level, yeah. do you start to experience mm -hmm. the same vexations? Mm -hmm. Would be the question. Yeah. And the same. Pro and yeah, and I, it's something else I've learned from from studying friendship and from like queer communities, asexual communities, is that romance doesn't always accompany sex. Romance is feeling like you idealize someone, you're passionate about someone, you want to spend all your time with them. And we see that in friendship too, quite normally. I mean, it's called romantic friendship, but I think when you look at best friends, you hear them say, you're my soulmate, I love you, I want to spend all my time with you, right? And so sometimes you can see with friends, there's also this bit of romance in that you're really passionate about your friend and you idealize them and you see all of the best in them. And then I, I think with these romantic friendships, a lot of times we do see some of the dynamics that we tend to see in spousal partnerships. Like people get more jealous, right. they get more territorial. But the hard part about in friendship is that the other person hasn't necessarily consented to that, right? Mm. You may feel like this is a romantic friendship for me. You probably wouldn't use those terms. Um, but the other person may not know that you have that sense of, the, of this friendship. And so it can get really dicey and really mm. complicated. I think some of the same reasons I really love friendship are the reasons why it's, it's so, it can be so difficult and so fragile because there's not clear expectations because it's fluid and because it's ambiguous but there actually has been a lot more talk recently especially in like gen z about platonic life partners like people choosing life partners yeah. for friends um and obviously it's not something that is easy legally right now but it's a thing that i think a lot of younger, younger generations have been thinking about more and more and there has been historical pr precedent for that as well mm. So my question is um, about teens and tweens, um, a conversation that Marissa and I started this morning. What are the impacts of social media and the pandemic on teen and tween friendships? Because they seem difficult, they seem challenged. And so I wanted to just sort of ask, like, what are you all seeing in terms of those younger friendships and their, even their ability to make friends? 
seems harder than what it was for mm -hmm. us growing up and through adulthood. Okay, mm -hmm. we're going to close on that because we are at zero seconds right now. So one of us can answer that. And just going to back to the co-living question, Chris, me, it's also urgent that we think about it because, of course, lots of people don't have kids, and lots of, about a quarter of women my age are child-free, right, or, don't, or childless, uh, and about a quarter of them, I think, are unmarried, right? So this is a, it was a great question that you asked. Do you wanna, who wants to take the question about kids? I have five. Is this mine? I'm drowning in teens and tweens. Um, so uh, I have five kids, they're 16 to 24. And so during the pandemic, we were all in middle school, high school, and college. Um, and so uh, I can just tell you what it looked like in our community, my house being one of them, and just my community at large. Um, the, pandemic, the pandemic was brutal on their friendships, absolutely brutal. They're already immature uh, relationally. They just don't have the depth of knowledge or maturity or wisdom or compromise. They're not measured. They're all over the place. They're, they're on a, an insane roller coaster just on the daily. Um, and so you apply that to their friendships and everybody is that disoriented. They were all that discombobulated and they turned on each other a lot. Um, and so we're still clawing our way forward. Um, a lot of friendships fell by the wayside and we're trying to figure out which ones made the cut um, why did they make the cut? Um, what was your contribution to the ones that didn't? Because um, all teenagers, no teenager has ever done, ever done anything wrong. It is your fault. It is y'all's fault. It's their friend's fault. It's their teacher's fault. The teacher made them get a D. Um, and so they don't, they're not very self-aware and they're not very like contrite. And so it's just, it's a lot of work to parent these kids through their losses, their friendship losses, um, when they don't have the emotional chops. It was hard on us and we're grown. So um, if, if you are talking about this from a perspective of a parent, you're just not alone. I do know that, that we just, it was a quagmire of parenting kids through the pandemic in a million ways and friendship was one of them. So I don't know. You know what they'll do? They'll tell us how we got it all wrong. Okay. <laughs> just wait. Just give them a couple of years. They'll write it out for you how you could have done better. Um, On that note. Yeah. I think we're going to, <laughs> yeah. we're going to end. Marissa Franco is an assistant clinical professor at the University of Maryland, where she teaches courses on loneliness and friendship. She also writes about friendship for Psychology Today and has spoken on belonging to audiences at HarperCollins Publishers, Cisco, and the U.S. Department of State. Her book, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends, comes out in September. Eric Barker is a writer and the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. He has also given talks at MIT, Yale, Google, the U.S. Military Central Command, and the Olympic Training Center. His latest book, Plays Well with Others, came out in May. Jen Hatmaker is an author, speaker, and host of the podcast For the Love. She's written over a dozen books, including the New York Times bestsellers For the Love and Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire. 
She leads an online community that reaches millions of people each week, and along with her former husband, hosted the HGTV reality series, Your Big Family Renovation. Jennifer Sr. is a staff writer at The Atlantic and winner of the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for feature writing. Before that, she was a book critic and an op-ed columnist at The New York Times. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.